literally seconds ago, we talked about doing some goofy April Fool's joke and saying the show was over again. But I made an executive decision and decided against that. Well, then I realized when the show comes out, it's not going to be April Fool's Day. Yeah, so that'd be oh. kind of stupid. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm falling apart. Why? Well, the back went out two weeks ago. Now I'm having migraines. I think I'm dying. You're not dying. It's anxiety. Why? I don't have anxiety. Because you're a high-stress guy, and so everything stresses you out. There's a lot going on right now. And such as building a fence. Yeah, I'm building a fence. That's, <laughs> well, you that's, aren't, but... Well, yeah, right. now that build shit. Having to approach neighbors that you don't know well to get their permission to do what you need to do on your own property is unnerving. It is. Uh, you know, because you don't want to have any like, problems. I'm, un- I'm like, you're the one going over there, but I'm like nervous for you. Well, I thought I was going to get killed. Well, I knew you weren't going to get killed, but... You know, again, am I going to have to fight someone or I know it's good. You start know, a street fight? You know, here's the thing about life. This is the thing that's just fucking weird about life. I I freak out about everything. And you know that, Amber. You live with me. Naturally. And it all works out. Sometimes. Most of the time. No, no. Even when it doesn't work out, it works out. I have a positive outlook on things. And sometimes, yeah, it don't work out. Sometimes you don't get everything you want. But it always seems to pan out, though. It's the balance, I guess. I guess it's the balance. And I, and I and it bothers me because I do freak out about dumb stuff, about little things like that. And I know in my heart that I'm going to go over there and have a great conversation with somebody, and it's going to be a positive outcome. But you still freak out. You still stress out. You still give yourself a headache like I did. So don't be like me. That's the moral like of the story this week. We did go see Us. That was a cool. It was all right. Well, you're cool fu- you're fussy. I'm not fussy. You're mo fussy when it comes you're to movies. Mo fussy. You're a little I'm fussy. Mo fussy. You're a little I thought you, you called me a mo fussy. No, I didn't call you a you're mo fussy. fussy. Mo What's a mo fussy? Mo fussy. What's <laughs> up, mo fussy? Mo fussy. Anyway, you're a little fussy when it comes to movies, and you're quick to be like, mm, "It's okay. It was okay." Meanwhile, I'm well, like, "That was me. awesome. It was. I thought it was, I was an awesome I, I'm movie." Draw, I'm You know, now we don't want to spoil anything. But no, I, no, no, no. I did spend. I did spend. Today, you know, when I was at the office, I was thinking about the, the movie and I was starting to draw more lines. Okay. So I'm like, okay, I can appreciate the I think, clever plot. I think that's a movie you could watch twice. I, I think there's probably some underlying things in there. Uh, we're not going to give you any spoilers, but it it was good. I think if you like Get Out um, <sighs> by Jordan Peele, <sighs> I think you'd like Us. I don't know. So, us was a little creepier, maybe, than Get Out. Get They're both psychological, yeah. but... I, I think it's cool that this guy who came uh, from comedy is doing these movies. And I know everyone's like really like, oh, the Twilight Zone reboot. Like, I'll, I'll, give, suck, the, I'll, but give, I'll give him credit. I, I don't of, know. One of the things I do appreciate is there to me, I guess it's because it's just my preference. The older, the older I'm getting, the less I can deal with gore and blood and stuff like that. It just bothers me. Uh, and I've seen Get Out and I've seen Us now as far as this horror, this horror stuff he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I think those movies have just the right amount of of violence, I guess, and blood and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know if I squirmed in Us, but there was a scene in Get Out that I kind of went, ooh, and I looked there was away. Some, there was some some cringe in that. But it but, wasn't constant. But it wasn't, something that, it wasn't something that burrows its way into your skull and disturbs you, you know. So I, 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 it was worth, I, it was worth the, 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 the ticket. It was fun. 
Yeah, we went to a ten forty five mandate. Yeah. That might have been so the should, earliest I ever saw a movie. Like, old man Scott and Amber here, old lady Amber. We go no, to the, well, we, we go to the matinees now in the morning with our coffee. Ten forty five. Although I got my oh, popcorn. I got a ten forty five film to see. I, I was like Scott's like you're gonna get wait no what did you I said I'm not gonna get popcorn because it's too early. And then I walked in. And, and I like, agreed with you. Yeah. And well, then you smelled it for like a micro thing. You're like, I need popcorn. Yeah. And I went straight in the line and got popcorn. And that was like the earliest I've ever had popcorn. And then you, you of course. Destroyed it. Destroyed the popcorn. <laughs> and the bucket of frozen Coke that I get. Because they give that you the bucket. That thing literally has a handle on it. Yeah, it's a bucket. What the hell is that? I don't know. But. The popcorn is delicious. Amber spends more time putting all of the dressings and stuff on the popcorn and she actually spends eating it. Dressing, there's sprinkles. She has to put the proper ratio of all the different salts. They're just fucking salts. They're not salt. It's white cheddar sprinkles and then a little dash of nacho seasoning. It tastes like salt. It tastes awesome. It don't taste like anything but pure salt. Anyway, what's awesome is the fact that this show has Colin Dickey and... Yes, we had Colin Dickey here. I'm sorry if I fangirl or talk a little fast or get weird... Because this book is one of my absolute favorite books when it comes to the paranormal. Because anybody that knows me knows I'm a paranormal history nerd. And the way this book was laid out is just brilliant and perfect. And I think I'm you serious. freaked out less with when you met Devin Townsend. Maybe. I don't know. Devin Townsend is pretty, pretty amazing. But so is Colin. I know. And he's got a new book coming out. And you can hear about it in the show. And so I'm equally geeked about that. Tell but... us about Colin. Uh, Colin. Tell us all about Colin. I'll tell you all about Colin. So he's a writer. He's a speaker, an academic. He's made a career out of collecting unusual objects and hidden histories all over the country. He's a regular contributor to the LA Review of Books, Lampham's Quarterly, and is the co-editor with Joanna Ebenstein of the Morbid Anatomy Anthology. Mm. He is also a member of the Order of the Good Death, who we just had someone, um, on just a few Kelly Christian yeah and I don't remember what episode that was but that was a awesome couple episodes show. ago Kelly Christian a collective uh, of artists writers and death industry professionals interested in improving the western world's relationship with mortality so this like this guy's smart he's got a PhD in comparative literature from the University of Southern California and he is also an associate professor of creative writing at National University so this is why the book is excellent because the dude is smart and he's professor of creative writing so, so it's just it's written just with, it's, with a satin pen it is it, it's a perfect his, his writing is beautiful and troy taylor even agreed that this was yeah. one of the best books he's read in a long time and troy taylor's written like a billion a books. gazillion books so yeah. anyway we hope you enjoy colin dickey he's awesome he's amazing he's super smart you're gonna learn a ton your head's gonna be bigger it's gonna be better it's like wheaties for your head last year at Troy Taylor's Haunted America conference Mm -hmm. and I was so geeked because I had both my books that I wanted to get signed by him 
And I I don't know if you remember this, Colin, but I was the one that approached you while you were getting water right before your talk and was like, will you sign my books? Oh, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> And so I was super geeked. It was like one of the only talks I was really, 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 really looking forward to. And I was not disappointed. And then at the end, we got treated to Colin singing a very um, impassioned rendition of Wanted in the Bon Jovi in in the lounge that night. And uh, of course, I sat there, his loyal reader, rooting him on and cheering him on in uh, all his uh, majesty. So welcome to the show, Colin. And we're so happy that you came to chat with us about your amazing book, Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places. Thank you so much for having me on. It's nice that now the world will know that my true passion is haunting karaoke bars all over the country. (laughs) That that uh the, the haunted America conference every you know we we're kind of we just kind of go there every year now, and every year, the karaoke thing they bring that in there and every year we always come home with a great story, <laughs> from somebody being well, somebody just throwing down either some it. it's a karaoke either someone's amazing or they're a complete shit show so it, yeah. it doesn't it's that's how it karaoke never disappoints goes. regardless you know some of us try to be both at the same time. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, easy. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, I have to sit here and um, also uh, plug your book again because this was one of the best books I have read on the paranormal in forever. Uh, it is one of my favorites, and like I said, it was it's called Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places. Um, and this book, I, it's okay, how do I describe this? Every thought in my head, somehow you, Colin, were able to write what was in my head, I guess. I don't, this is hard to like form everything I feel about the paranormal, how I, how I look at it, view it was in this book. And you're not even a ghost hunter or or necessarily like an investigator by trade. You're, you're a professor, right? Uh, yeah, apparently I'm also a psychic if I was that good at getting inside your brain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'll I'll say that because I just, every, I mean, I have this book so underlined and highlighted like the entire first chapter, just the introduction alone. That's really cool to say, by the way. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that the book worked for you. That's always, you know, when you're a writer, you just kind of throw something out to the void and you never quite know what happens when it reaches the other side. So that's always cool to hear. So well, what what inspired you to write this? Um, So the book started um, and and people who've read it know this is a a pretty substantial chapter. It started with me uh, growing up near the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California, Uh, you know, which is the 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 house known at least claiming to be the most haunted house in the country. And it was it was the thing that you took, you know, out of town guests to see. It was the it was just kind of used to be a lot cheaper, too, when we were kids. So you could go there more frequently. Um, but I just always love that building. And for people who, who don't know that building, it, you know, in brief, what it is, is a, uh, massive Victorian mansion, about 161 rooms. Um, the story being that Sarah Winchester, who was the daughter-in-law, the guy who founded the Winchester rifle company, uh, lost both her infant daughter and then later her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, supposedly a psychic told her she was being haunted by anyone who'd ever been killed by a Winchester rifle. And that the only way to keep them at bay would be to keep the ghosts at bay would be to build a house that was never finished. So she bought this eight room farmhouse and built on it 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next 37 years. Um, so I just, I mean, I just always loved that house. I loved I mean, there aren't a lot of Victorians in San Jose, California. You know, I mean, it's right. mostly a lot of 
kind of stucco tract house monstrosities. That's kind of what I grew up in. And I, you know, I really just like was drawn to that house. So, um, so I started the book thinking it would just be a docu or a biography about Sarah Winchester. Cause I thought, well, here's a cool story. You know, I, at the time there weren't any books really devoted to her. And I thought it was a really fascinating, you know, story in its own right. And also a really interesting collision of different sort of narrative strands of American history and sort of different themes all coming together in this one place. And so so I thought, well, this will be really easy. I'll just go hit some historical societies, read some letters and some diaries and some newspaper clippings and then just kind of bang out this biography and it'll be cool. And that failed. And it, I spent <laughs> um, I spent about four years trying to write a biography about Sarah Winchester in different ways before I realized that it just wasn't possible there actually and during that time a book did come out that was a biography of her um which was you know really well researched and a great book but it also made clear to me that the book that i wanted to do couldn't really be done in that way and so that's about the point i started to think well maybe there are other other buildings other places other stories that that could be told alongside sarah winchester's and uh and then the book kind of spiraled from there it went from I was going to talk about like five places to then like 12 places. And then I think in the, the end, I don't forget what I ended up with, like 21 different, you know, chapters or something like that. Yeah. So that's how that's how the book came to be. Uh, and that's kind of comforting because I have started so many projects and it's kind of comforting to hear someone else say I worked on something for four years and then it, you know, awesomely turned into something else that was even better and unexpected. Uh, with, when I was reading your book, the Sarah Winch Winchester story was kind of surprising to me because I didn't know. I mean, I had heard all the usual stories about what goes on in that house. And, you know, she does a seance every night at this time and blah, blah, blah. But when you mentioned that an article was published in the San Jose Daily News back in 1895, that pretty much started the whole story that they tell to this day that was not even accurate, more just picking on her because she was a one percenter and a woman living alone, I was taken aback by that whole story because it just makes you think how we take many of these ghost stories for granted, don't question them, and it's almost like fake news. And it, and it serves a purpose in its own way, which you do expound on your book, but I thought that was so fascinating to learn that part because you never hear that part in every article you read about the place. Yeah, well, and exactly, and that, again, that's why I thought it would be so easy because I, I assumed that the story that I had heard all my life was more or less factually accurate, and I couldn't figure out why there wasn't a lot more documentation about it. I mean, it's such a great story, and yet, you know, I couldn't find very many news reports. I couldn't, I, there just wasn't anything out there, and the stuff that I did find um, all contradicted, you know, the story, you know. So, for example, um, uh, you know, the idea that she worked on the house 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I found a couple letters written by her um, in the Connecticut Historical Society archive. Um, there's some of the very few letters that that she wrote that are still around, which is crazy um, that there aren't more. But, you know, where she talks about her her construction process. And of course, it was not 24 hours, seven days a week. It was, you know, I I, I just took seven months off because, you know, the house was too confusing and all I'll work on it again a little bit later. And, you know, there are no references to ghosts or spiritualism or any of that. And, you know, while it's it's impossible to prove a negative, um, you know, in the absence of any kind of 
um, evidence that she was, you know, obsessed or interested mm-hmm. with ghosts. Uh, both me and, and Mary Jo Agnafa, who the woman who wrote the the kind of more straight up biography of her, both have concluded that, you know, all of that story was likely fabricated. You know, as you mentioned, there there basically was um, a kind of rumor mill that had started, you know, in the mid 1890s. But after she died, uh, the house was purchased by. Um, uh, an amusement park, uh, I don't know what the term is, uh, empresario, uh, anyways, who decided that it would be, he could make money by turning it into a haunted house and so resurrected those legends in order to kind of give the house a kind of eerie, spooky backstory to make a, you know, make sense of the fact that it was so oddly constructed. So, oh. so yeah. So anyway, sorry, I'm kind of rambling on. No, you're not. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Keep going. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So, I mean, it, it so that's part of why I realized I couldn't write the book that I wanted to write because, you know, you can't spend an entire book building up this cool ass story. And then in the last 10 pages say, boop, 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 it's all a lie. Yeah. You know, so, you know, so I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Um, you can do that like in a chapter, you can't do that in the book. Um, you know, but so, so I, for a long stretches of time, I thought, well, you know, there's just no book there. I just can't, can't figure out how to do that, but I kept coming back to it. I kept trying. I wrote, you know, I, this was supposed to be my second book. I wrote a, a second, uh, I, I wrote a different book in the meantime that became my second book. Um, and then I, I came back to this and I kept coming back to it. And it was, you know, I mean, it was kind of a thing where you sort of keep looking for a way into, into this, this book. And, um, you know, finally I found it, but I found it by putting, putting the Winchester story in a much broader context. And I, I think, you know, as you said, I mean, that's when I realized that these stories that, that we tell so often about ghosts, not only do they often not quite line up with the historical record, but also the reasons why they don't are to me as fascinating as the stories themselves. So like once I started to look into the difference between the historical record and, and the ghost stories that, that got told, I just got really fascinated with, you know, why these stories? Why do we see history through this lens? Why do we see, you know, the dead and, the, you know, the paranormal and all that stuff? Why do we kind of give it this cast and not some other cast? Why why Victorian houses and not, you right. know, modern stucco houses? Like, you know, like all these questions just started springing to mind. And that's what drove a lot of the the subsequent research and where I, you know, really set out to try and figure out if I could understand kind of how these stories get told and retold and, and mm-hmm. how they evolve over the years. What what bums me out and or scares me a little bit with the question you just asked about, you know, why Victorian houses? Is it all because of entertainment? Has entertainment, I mean, because we've said this for years, Colin. Um, what we, what we tell people all the time is, look, ghost hunting and the paranormal, it's nothing like the movies and stuff like that, right? Because I think a lot of people, right. that's why they're afraid of this idea of a spirit or an entity. And I think, you know, like, just going on that again, why a Victorian house? Well, it seems like, I, I don't know either, but it seems like I when I think of a spooky, scary house, well, freaking Haunted Mansion, for God's sake. Well, I mean, come on. Well, I it's mean, part of our literature. Yeah, our movies. It's, it's part it's of our culture, for God's spooky sake. spooky house. Yeah, like like Colin just said, we don't talk about, like, a modern stucco. Yeah, yeah, we don't think about that. blue siding, plastic slide, you know, that doesn't have the yeah. general appearance of being instantly considered haunted. 
Right. But um, so, yeah, I mean, some of these things, I think, are, um, you know, kind of feedback loops. So, right. So like Walt Disney takes his inspiration for the Haunted Mansion from the Winchester Mystery House and then builds the Haunted Mansion, which then, you know, kind of continues to feed, you know, other iterations of what a haunted house should look like and that kind of thing. So so these do become sort of entertainment kind of feedback loops. But I think the other thing that I found is that houses, not just houses, I mean, buildings in general that have kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of outlived their time are the ones that uh, tend to become associated with with hauntings, right? So so it's not just Victorian houses. It's also, uh, you know, another thing I talk about a lot in the book is um, the the uh, Kirkbride Haunted Asylum. You oh, know? yeah. The Kirkbride Asylums were a specific kind of architecture that was um, was used for a specific kind of psychiatric kind of vision of, you know, how... Yeah people with mental health problems should be treated. Yeah, and it led therapy. to these very specific kind of buildings that were built all over the country. And they were huge rock, concrete, brick monstrosities that are very hard to tear down. And so they just didn't go anywhere long after psychiatry had sort of moved on and started building different kinds of buildings. And so, so that's part of the reason why, you know, a Victorian house to sort of stick with that one example um, you know, has that kind of haunted auras. It's it's just it's anachronistic, right? You know, and and I I didn't talk about this in the book, but um, I wrote a piece subsequently for Slate.com about um, paranormal activity and the idea of the haunted McMansion, right? You know, I mean, the McMansion has sort of replaced the Victorian as this yeah. a kind of overgrown, slightly chaotic, somewhat kind of excessive building that sort of is everywhere. And, you know, and, and so we're starting to get kind of a sense that, you know, maybe those buildings too could be haunted and, you know, you know, paranormal activity being kind of the, the great example sort of film example of, of a haunted, haunted house story where the haunted house looks nothing like the kinds of houses that we're useful, used to, and are, is in fact, this kind of, you know, tracked house, you know, easily replicated kind yeah. of things. So, so, yeah. So and and again, I mean, I, the last thing I'll say about that is, you know, McMansions like Victorians, they do they are kind of um, Baroque in their construction. Right. The whole idea of a Victorian house is that it's got lots of little nooks and crannies and, you know, kind of extra staircases or little special eaves and, you know, cupolas and turrets and places like that, you know, and and that's, you know, uh, contrast that to a you know, super futuristic modern house where it's just a big gray rectangular slab with, you know, yeah. uh, floor to ceiling windows, right? Like, you know, like there, I think there is something about those buildings that are themselves a little excessive that, you know, tend to kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of, kind of gather ghosts unto themselves in a way that like minimalism, I guess, does not. I don't know if that yeah. makes any no, sense. No, it makes perfect sense because the thought that came to my head was cemeteries. I, I you see yeah. an old cemetery with the, the huge, cool mausoleums and you're like, oh, that's so haunted, right? Everyone's scared of that. And then you see these newer ones with the boring, even laser etched stones that are just these small chunks of granite. And it's like, mm. like there's no ghost around yeah, there. Right. It's, it's right. boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Right. Yeah. Like, like, um, yeah, I'm, you know, I spent a lot of time in L.A. and, you know, L.A. is fam- famous for its um, forest lawn cemeteries where there aren't any headstones. Yeah. They're all 
sunken into the ground so you can uh, mow the lawn a lot easier. And so, yeah, and they, they lack that kind of, kind of, yeah, that aura, that, that sense that, you know, a kind of older cemetery yeah. one that's maybe a little down on its heels has. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It don't feel like there's a presence there, I guess. That's, no. that's, there's no vampire. <laughs> no, not even just when you go to an old, it, and we have, there's so many different ideas about, you know, whether cemeteries are even really haunted or not. It's all up in the air, of course. But when you do go by a cemetery and we we go by plenty of them and there are the ones we've been by, especially in the area where we live here, there's plenty of very old cemeteries and you, you feel it kind of maybe and maybe it's the mind working. But when you go well, by, you know, a cemetery with these giant mausoleums and things like that. It, it, well, you see the history. And that was just you just literally took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, you yeah. see history there with the giant mausoleums, a whole different era that's come and gone with with how we house our dead. And if you pass something like a memorial park with the flat stones, you're just not even reminded because it's it's barely noticeable. It's like it's an empty field. Yeah. What do they do out there? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> dead people out there. I, I you wouldn't even know. I you wouldn't even know if unless you saw the sign that said you know memorial well, park. Well, so when we were talking about the Winchester House and and the whole concept of. Uh, Tourism. So this guy buys the house, makes it into a, a tourist destination attraction, and this is still going on to this day. Ghost tours are everywhere. Every big city you go to, big and small, has a ghost tour. And I love ghost tours because it's a way to engage people in their local history. Uh, what normally could be considered boring to them because it's, it is history, you throw a couple murders, some ghosts, a haunted house in there, and people are transfixed. But... Uh, there was a topic that we have for you about ghost tours and particularly young cities that don't have the same gothic legacy of a place like New Orleans or Richmond. Yeah. Wait, wait, what's the question? Wait. <laughs> I was sipping my coffee. Where'd it go, Amber? I'm sorry. Okay. Wait, wait you, you don't, you don't stop. You, you don't ask, start a question and then take a sip of coffee. No, I was basing this off of your show notes, Scott. But it doesn't say sip the coffee in the middle of the well, sentence. Well, okay, I'm fine. I didn't say sip coffee. <laughs> All and right, he, start over. No, okay. So the point okay. is... No, these, it, was, it was a good dramatic pause. Let's, let's, okay. uh, let's go on that. God damn it. So these ghost tours, okay, you have... It's almost like, do you have to create... If the city's new, are you creating new stories just like how the Winchester sort of... The story was created around them. Um, I, I don't know. And we, the other thing we have, I guess I can combine the two questions, is the difference between the ghost stories told on these tours... And the ones that are in guidebooks versus the kind of ghost stories that get told in horror movies like us, which we just saw uh, Pet Cemetery yeah. that's coming out, you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, well, there's many things. So let's so new cities. So one, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that um, new cities kind of have their own share of ghosts. And um, I think what's, you know, I. I I'm really fascinated by a city like Los Angeles, which is a, a lot newer than uh, New Orleans or New York or something like that, but has a really um, sort of fascinating and vibrant history of ghosts. But because it's Los Angeles, um, those ghost stories tend to be about Hollywood. They tend to, you know, a lot of like, you know, uh, actress comes to the big city uh, can't make it in Hollywood, commits suicide in a hotel room. Now that hotel room is haunted. You know, I mean, those that's a pretty frequent story that you get in Los Angeles that you're not going to get in Tulsa or, you know, 
Portland, Maine, right? And so, um, so I think younger cities do often have, um, you know, their own ghost tales. In some ways, they're they're a little bit more organic and unique because it's harder for those cities to sort of have those kind of default um, kind of traditional generic stories that that you hear. But I guess also, I mean, I was just in Portland, Oregon. I was given a talk up there about about ghost stories in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, I was, I was doing a bunch of research. And what occurred to me is a lot of times those guidebooks, you know, I picked up a couple guidebooks I was reading through. And what it's what I saw kind of again and again would be there, there would be some story about some place. People had seen something. People had kind of had some feeling about this restaurant or this hotel or whatever. And then the guidebook author kind of would just kind of fill in a kind of stock story. Mm. Um, and I don't know if that's, you know, where the guidebook author just kind of slotted it in or maybe the locals had it. Like there was one story of, of, in Celette's uh, Oregon, which is actually a couple hours outside of Portland, Oregon. But it's uh, there's a woman. She's walking along this this uh, road next to a river. And if you pick her up. Uh, you know, she's you pick her up and give her a ride. No harm will come to you. But if you leave her by the side of the road, your car will crash. Right. Like that's a super, super old, uh, you know, vanishing hitchhiker. Yeah. Story yes. That has just been sort of like slotted into this different area. And so like so a lot of times I feel like these guidebooks they're you know, and, and, and no disrespect because I know artists to write a book. But, you know, like they're kind of just kind of filling in a couple of kind of stock figures um, when you have a place that's maybe a little bit anomalous, but nobody has any any real good definitive story to go with it. So, you know, I, I it's a really I don't I don't think there's a there's a simple single answer for how any city gets its ghost stories. You know, I think it's a really fascinating blend of actual local history of kind of urban legends that are a little bit more universal and generic um, about you know, there's a mix of kind of things that are locally important to that city that get incorporated into the city. So like, I don't know if you guys know Portland, Oregon, but um, one of the things that's really famous for is it's Shanghai Tunnels. Do you guys know about yes. this? Yes. yes. Yeah. So um, so and, and for readers who don't know, you know, there's this there's this big river that cuts Portland in half and um, there, there are a bunch of cool waterfront bars. And the story is that under some of these bars, in the basement, there are these tunnels that lead to the waterfront where, um, you know, uh, disreputable folks used to get sailors on leave drunk until they passed out. And then they would drag them through these tunnels onto waiting ships, AKA Shanghai them, you know, thus the idea of these Shanghai tunnels. So, yeah. so that's a, that's a really common, uh, motif in a lot of downtown, uh, uh, Portland ghost stories, even though the Shanghai tunnels don't really exist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Portland. Um, although there is a bar called the Shanghai tunnel, which is <laughs> not great. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Portland. Anyways. Um, so, you know, so anyways, all of which to say, I mean, I think it's, it, what's really fascinating is you can kind of go city by city and kind of ask that question. Like, how did these ghost stories get put together into a guidebook or a tour? Like what, you know, it's never going to be like a deliberate choice that, you know, some somebody made. It's it's that's the cool thing about folklore and, yeah. and you know, just the way that like some stories get told and, and catch on and other stories kind of die out or, you know, it's all this kind of blend of, of this kind of communal act of storytelling. And I think it's totally cool and fun. 
And one of the things that I'd like to point out, too, I don't know how you feel about this, and this may not be the prettiest side of this, too. It's something I've seen in, in this field, unfortunately. Uh, when it comes to tours, especially, I've found, and it's what I uh, call, uh, sadly, I have to call it manufacturing a haunt. You know, and, and, and I don't know if an, it, I'm not saying it answers these questions that you've asked about this, Colin, but I, I found it. There's we've I've seen some, well you said kind of already that there you know you kind of fill in some of the fill in some of the some, some of the spots with some generic stories right I, I've come across some things and I and I found some things that I just found like where I wanted to ask people involved for example like is there any evidence of this at all or is this just you know what you heard. Is this yeah. something that you were just told? Do you have any type of evidence that the person you're talking about, for example, ever really existed? Like they say, it's a story. It's a story about a person, and they tell it as part of their tour and whatnot. And I know you can't. It's it's difficult to get evidence like that. But it's I see a lot of stuff that seems to be just coming out of thin air now, especially nowadays. I find out about you know we find out about a new building all the time that now they're having ghost tours at. Uh, because there was something that you know something really heavy that went down. There was a bunch of murders that happened there, where that building in in Detroit, especially where we're at, uh, there's been a handful of these things, of these locations where these were just dilapidated buildings five six years ago, uh, and now we're finding that there's all of a sudden there's stories and maybe hey maybe we didn't do our research I don't know but it seems like we've spent a lot of time here and we would have heard these stories or something would have came up. I'm not saying that people are being completely untruthful, but it's something that I've thought about a lot. And, and this kind of kind of rings that bell a little bit to me, Colin, is this idea that of, of of things that just they kind of just come out of thin air, I guess. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. And, and you know, maybe it's it's worth kind of asking. I mean, I think there are people, folks like yourselves who are, you know, very serious and sort of really interested in actually doing that research and making sure that the history sort of comports, you know, with, with, uh, the story. Uh, and I yeah. hopefully am also part of that. But then, I mean, if you, if you take a ghost tour in New Orleans, I mean, there well, like hundreds of people take those tours in the French quarter every night. I mean, you know, they go off every half hour, four or five different tour groups, every half hour, 25 people, a group. I mean, you just see, and you know, I think for a lot of folks, um, this is not, you know, maybe not necessarily the, something they want to think too much about. They kind of maybe just want to have a fun yeah. time. Um, and I try and be, you know, chill about that as much as I can be, you know, like I, you know, I, in other words, I think that people want different things out of these stories and, um, and that, that is, that is to me also interesting. So, you mm -hmm. know, I, I, and again, I mean, you know, a lot of people have uh, expressed displeasure with with Ghostland because they read it as me debunking a bunch of ghost stories as, as though I'm some sort of killjoy. And, uh, you know, that's sort of true. But it's also, you know, I think maybe they just want something different from those ghost stories than I do. And I try and also respect that. So, yeah, do people sometimes just kind of come up with a story that, you know, maybe increases the cachet of their weird old building? Probably, you know, I mean, for me, you know, if that story is itself, um, you know, not openly problematic in terms of, you know, gender or race or something like that. And mm -hmm. if it is not, 
Uh, and if, if the people who have come up with a story don't try and sort of falsify the historical record, then fine, you know, let them have their, their cool little urban myth, you know, and if people resonate with it, you know, yeah, that's great. Cool. That's you know, fine. like, and, and, you know, but again, if, if they're actually making it difficult for, for folks like yourself to do genuine historical research, then that is a problem. And that does get into the kind of fake news nonsense. But, you know, if, if it's sort of, you know, and again, I mean, I've, I've had this happen where I'll go someplace and I'll say, you know, I've, I've, I've heard this story and everybody will just kind of go, yeah, not, that's mm, not really true. You know, we just kind of do that for the tourists. I mean, I, you know, the current book I'm writing now is on uh, partly on cryptids, and I went down to Darien, Georgia, uh, home of the Altamahaha uh, River monster. And uh, even though there's a kind of tourist element to the to Darien, I was told pretty conclusively that it was probably a, a manatee that had ap- accidentally swum up river. So oh. you know, yeah. So <laughs> um, so anyway, so again, it's it's there 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 are lots of different ways to spin that, and I think as long as you're not actively doing harm, I think maybe you know, you know, that's ex- the- I think that's acceptable. Yeah. However, right. and Amber, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't want to. That's okay. I know, but just give me, just give me two more minutes, Amber, please. Yeah, you're fine. Um, where does it become just entertainment then? And you know what? Here's the thing. I and I and I'm with you on that, Colin. Um, you know, I do like. I am more. I mean, I am more into the factual history of things. I'm not out there picketing people who are trying to have tours. I think, like you said already, if if people want to have fun and enjoy themselves, that's fine. And to me though, that's my point. That's just entertainment. You're, you're just an entertainer and, and that's fine. So that's what some people, like you already said, some people, that's what they want out of that. They want to be entertained for an hour or an hour and a half when they go on one of these tours. That's perfectly fine. If people are willing to pay for that. Um, and yeah, if, as long as it doesn't, I guess if it doesn't impede somebody who's trying to do genuine research, I mean, more power to them. <laughs> I don't I don't really know other, any other way to think about that. Amber. Right. And, uh, yeah, cuz it's I mean nope. if you if you jump up and down on a street corner in New Orleans trying to tell people the actual true history of um you know the uh Andrew Jackson Hotel or anything like that. I mean, you're not going to make friends. No. Um you know and and so um again, I mean my my what what drove me in writing the book was this question of like you know, why are these, why are these specific stories popular? Like, why do, you know, why do we love civil war stories, yes. but we don't love, we don't love revolutionary war stories in right. the same way. So it's like, you know, like those are the kind of questions that I think are as useful as, you know, uh, you know, are these true or not? Because it, it is such a losing battle to kind of tell people over and over again that, you know, the thing they thought was cool is actually not that cool. Right. <laughs> and, and one of the, like you. <laughs> One of the quotes I pulled from your introduction that I absolutely love that I feel is a large theme throughout your book is when you said, we talk about our past through the language of ghosts. And I love that. And and further to expound on that, you also said, we tell stories of the dead as a way of making sense of the living. Ghost stories reveal the contours of our anxieties, the nature of our collective fears, the things we can't talk about in any other way and also ghosts bridge the past to the present i love that so i want to fight anybody it's that very hates. poetic too it is beautiful, well, Ble- beautiful his, the whole book is beautifully written so the fact that he said he had some detractors to the book i'm gonna go fight them Aww. we're gonna have an ass kicking we're gonna have we're gonna have a ghostly talk match here and it's gonna be me fighting people that left negative reviews about colin's book <laughs> 
Okay, so so the one person I think you cannot fight, uh, the oh, one one-star Amazon review you can't fight is the person who titled their Amazon review Debunction Junction because oh I love that phrase so much that they get a pass even though they hated the book. I'm sorry. Sorry whoever wrote that review. But it was a good turn of phrase, and you get props for coming up with debunction junction. Well, uh, it's witty, if anything. It's, it's amazing, right. but you're you're not debunk. Okay, so you're okay. Let's. Oh wait, all right, fine. You debunked some stuff. Well, you found out the truth about it, but then you expound on all this other stuff. That's like, okay, this might be true. This this story about Sarah Winchester or whoever might not be true, but we continue to tell the story. Why we continue to tell it is just as important as the story or not this you know what i mean like that's that's what i feel like a lot of your book is about and why it's so important to the rest of the paranormal uh literature out there right and so well um so in george orwell's 1984 there's a line um which i'm i'm paraphrasing from memory but it's it speaks to this and that line is uh let me see if i can remember it right okay um those who control the past control the future and those who control the present control the past. Wow. I love that. And it, I mean, and it's, it's, it's really apropos in a lot of contexts, um, you know, and, and a lot of the way education and sort of just, you know, mainstream political discourse works. But it's also also true of ghost stories, too, right? Like what we are doing when we're constructing stories about the past. Um, and that's, this is true, you know even with factual stories, how we tell factual stories and how we construct stories that aren't factual, what we are doing there is we are, are, are trying to influence how we shape the future. And I think that's what I found really fascinating about ghost stories, that, is that ghost stories, by telling a specific kind of narrative about the past, are themselves trying to influence the way we see the, the future and, and, and what we do with that future. So I think that is really fascinating and, and worth thinking about in terms of not just, you know, what, what are these stories doing for tourists and entertainment, but what are they, what are they trying to tell us about the future? You know, I mean, one of my favorite stories in New Orleans was uh, on a ghost tour, a guy who had, who had lived in New Orleans um, for a long time, and and he told the the uh, the story of the the ghostly priest who there were some uh, I'm trying to remember it all. Uh, it's complicated because New Orleans history is complicated, but um, <laughs> some uh, some Spanish insurgents who were executed and and uh, hung up in the town square and had been decreed that their bodies could not be removed. And this this Spanish priest managed through some sort of ghostly paranormal moves to like, you know, remove all the bodies and, you know, and he's telling the story and his, his voice is just building to this beautiful crescendo. And you realize, you know, I mean, this is a, this is, this is a city that has gone through hell and, um, is, you know, particularly in the height of something like Hurricane Katrina, you know, I mean, where there were literally bodies on the streets, um, you know, and, and I, I took this ghost story and its importance to 21st century New Orleans to be about the way in which those citizens were trying to sort of make good on a promise that they were going to care for their dead. And I thought that was that was really powerful. And, and that that's a that's a positive example of how, you know, stories about the past can be used to to shape and influence the future. And, and I think that's really cool. So this story, uh, uh, the one that you wrote about in Portland, Oregon, uh, about uh 
what was the name of it? I got it written down here. I don't want to forget. Thelma Taylor. What one was it? Thelma Taylor. Is that the yes, one? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Thelma Taylor. And how stories, ghost stories can affect the future because they're cautionary tales. Right. And I, I love this story. Uh, can you share this story? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so Thelma Taylor was a teenage girl in 1949 who had been doing some seasonal work. It was kind of one of these day laborer things where you show up at a certain spot and somebody uh, hires you to pick uh, cherries and other fruits um, in the summer. And she, instead, she was um, abducted by a guy who uh, kidnapped her and um, after a couple of days murdered her and, and she was abducted from a place called Cathedral Park, um, which is now supposedly haunted by, uh, you know, Thelma Taylor's ghost. Um, and so it's, it's a very well-known story in Portland and, uh, you know, kids go up to Cathedral Park all the time and, you know, have seances or, you know, bring EVPs and, yeah. you know, tattoos and all that stuff. And, um, what I just found kind of kind of heartbreaking about the whole thing is that that Thelma Taylor had a sister uh, who was a couple years old and uh, is still alive. And, um, you know, so so what is a fun kooky ghost story for most of Portland's, you know, citizenship is is for this one person, a, a horribly traumatic event that, you know, even in her, you know, I, I forget how old Pauline now is is now, you know, in her 70s or 80s, however old she is, you know, is, is still a very real thing to her. Yeah. And um, and so, so you know, again, I mean, I think the the other really weird thing about about ghost stories and their relationship to to the past is they are almost always about some kind of trauma, you know, a murder or, you know, a boat sinking or some kind of tragedy or something like that. And and it, it it's just that you know we we like those kind of stories about murder because they're they're spooky and scary and stuff like that. But every so often I realize like yeah, but there's actually a person who you know was the person who was murdered, and that's that's a heavy heavy thing. So well, and that's one thing I've I've thought about too. I mean, and it's one of the things that one of the things I think that uh, keeps me interested in ghost stories is this. That, the, the majority of a ghost story you hear is attached to a situation that was pretty heavy emotionally, whether it's love, whether it's anger, whether it's hate, whatever. I mean, any of those strong, uh, you know, very strong, intense emotions. Those are the things that seem to write themselves into the environment. And where we do hear about these residual type hauntings where, you know, every year somebody walks across a, a cemetery, whatever it may be, uh, it's it's that's what keeps me interested in is is the emotion but there are behind that you're right there there is a broken family possibly uh, a death like that can destroy families uh, in the case uh, was it Thel Thelma Taylor you said uh, that that right there yeah that would destroy a family that's a different well, way to look at this it, it's it's it, it's kind well, of depressing. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> it kind of hurts. Well, it's depressing to think that yeah. okay, that's your family member, and then there's teens going down yeah. and filming YouTube videos and all that stuff about this. And so when we do, we I I do ghost tours in a not ghost tours, but historical um, tours in a cemetery in West Michigan, and they're focused on true crime. But we deliberately do not talk about anyone uh, past 1930 because of that fact that there could be still people alive that are like, that was my great, great grandpa. And we didn't know that. And we're pissed now. And you're, you know, you're, you're, we're not making any money. Cause it's, it's 
put on by a library, but still, it's just people don't like you talking about their family and their family dirt like it's the tabloid and making it in entertainment. Uh, now it is history. Most of the stuff we find, we pull it right out of the paper. So it, you know, it's there. We're allowed to talk about it, but we're also, we want to be respectful about it. Um, and one of the things in this chapter in the book about Cathedral Park that I really found interesting was this concept. I think it came from Africa about the Sasha. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but the Sasa and the Zamani. Yeah. That yeah, was super so cool. cool. Yeah. Um, and um, so so basically the idea is that there are there are two kinds of of dead. There are the dead who are re still re still in living memory of those who are alive. It's sort of hard to explain. But once you once you explain it, it sort of makes perfect sense. And then there are the dead for whom nobody who's alive remembers that person, right? So I, I don't know, like uh, the difference between Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan, right? Yeah. There's still people who remember Ronald Reagan who are living now, but nobody alive now has a personal memory of, of Abraham Lincoln. And so these these are kind of two different ways of thinking about about the dead. And if people are, are interested in this um, idea, um, there's a really interesting novel um, by Kevin Brockmeyer called The Brief History of the Dead, where it's a novel, so it's fictional, but the idea is that um, those who, that, that there's a sort of city of the dead, but it is a city where the only people who are there are the people who are still in living memory. So, you know, when you show up, you're, you, it's because people are still alive who remember you, but as those people all disappear, then you kind of fade from that city and you go into this kind of more permanent state of being dead. So it's it it takes that idea and it has a kind of fictional construct and um, you know the 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 novel is sort of about that about that that city yeah. while meanwhile back in the land of the living there's a plague that wipes out almost everybody on the planet so that the city of the dead sort of is really it gets really overpopulated all of a sudden and then starts to thin out really rapidly as like everybody starts to die and there's sort of nobody left to remember anybody so it's a cool. It's a cool premise, and it and kind of takes that story. But I'm, that's probably not what you were, you were asking well, that it, question. Well, you know, <laughs> it made me think about some, you know, a movie reference, too. Oh, well, I had a movie reference. Mine was Coco. <sighs> Seriously, Colin, did you see Coco, the Disney movie? No. I'm not Should... kidding. This is the premise. All right, okay. all right Colin, have you ever oh, seen – yeah. Go yes, ahead. I have not seen it yet, but, um, yes, it's it's been on my mind. I had an actual – I had a loss in my own family, so I'm – had to stay away from movies that I knew were just going to. Right. Oh, no. Man. Yeah. Don't watch Coco. Well, yeah. For that. But yeah, there was gangs there. in New York also. Oh. I don't know if you've ever seen the end. If you've ever, have you ever seen gangs in New York, Colin? Yeah. 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 The, well, the very, yeah. the very end of the movie, it shows the graveyard where Bill the butcher and the, and the preacher were, were both buried at. Right. And it shows you, you know, it shows you the, you know, the original New York skyline and it shows you over generations and generations, how they just, the, that cemetery just keeps getting more and more subtle and subtle into the ground where it's basically gone over, over, right. over generations. And that's, I was, as you were talking about that, I was literally just picturing that scene in my mind. Cause I'm like, well, those people are truly dead now. They truly yeah. are dead. Cause no one remembers who the hell they are. Maybe yeah. not even history. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting th idea. Because that's that's you know that's what we always hear about the dead. I mean, in our families, our friends, uh, people we look up to, 
we always hear that idea, and I believe that. Like, this person's not dead. They're here with us still. They're here with us in spirit. They're with our memories. Uh, they're here with us still. In their way. And, yeah, is that, does that mean they're truly gone, though, when your memory of them's gone? Ugh. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, and that was the bigger part of the Samani aspect of it. And I, I'm quoting Colin all over the place because this is the quotes I could pull a million out of the book. They're too perfectly well, they're said. they're all beautiful. No, they're all beautiful. They're all beautiful. <laughs> I'm, I'm fangirling. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but anyway, with uh, you wrote The Effect of Zamani Memory. Without first-person accounts, without personal memories, the stories become monuments that must serve larger purposes. Oh, my God. I love that. It's, that sounds good. Did I write that? You wrote that. <laughs> you wrote it. It's epic. Uh, well, and, yeah. And so, it's, so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah. Well, it it made me think too about how ghost stories are such an awesome way because when you when you save these ghost stories, you're preserving history. When you when these things when these people okay so with the Zamani when you finally forget somebody. They're lost somewhere in the little bits of history in an old newspaper somewhere. So when we're doing research for our ghost tours or our, well, our true crime tours, <laughs> we we dig up these people that yeah. no one remembered in a published book anywhere. They're just little news bits in these newspapers, and now we're bringing them back to life again. And it's not that anyone has any memory, like we mentioned with the the other one, but we are, and some of it maybe becomes a little cautionary. It, I don't know, but it's it's cool being able to preserve these people's lives, even if they were kind of jerks, because it's a it's called a wicked tour. Um, but you, I, all history, uh, you know, it's nothing not all should supposed be, forgotten. to be happy. No, no, and and it's entertaining. Damn it. Well, right, and that and you know, and that's the flip side. You know, we were talking earlier about like you know, it can be kind of disrespectful if you know they're still living family memories, but or living family members and and they have memories. But you're right. I mean, the flip side of that is. The cool thing about ghost tours and, and ghost stories and stuff like that is when you you find people who have been kind of lost to history and you and you're able to bring them back. I mean, yeah, like Abraham Lincoln, he's good. He's we don't need ghost stories about Abraham Lincoln because we got enough biographies to sink a ship on that guy, right? But you know, like but those stories about some old house or some some woman who lived there and you know, got written up maybe in a in a newspaper article but otherwise was kind of forgotten to history. I mean, these kind of kind of micro histories of of just a place a small place or a person i mean that's what i think ghost stories can do really well and they and the the idea of a ghost story is a great way of giving those kind of smaller histories you know meaning and and giving them a reason to 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 stick around and they kind of elevate you know what might just be a kind of uh forgotten story into something a little bit more meaningful i mean you know maybe Maybe it was just a quote unquote ordinary murder that, you know, it doesn't have any larger significance, but, you know, it's still worth kind of keeping that, you know, that victim's memory alive in some way. And I think that's that's the kind of good work I think that you can do with ghost stories that I find really fascinating and cool. Yeah. And I think that when ghost hunting kind of got popular again in 2000, like after Ghost Hunters came out on Sci-Fi and everyone was starting a little ghost hunting team. Um, the people that stuck with it and really started falling in love with the research truly started looking you know, behind the ghost story. Why, why, well, why are we telling this? Yeah, why are we telling this? And did something actually happen here? And either debunking the story or going, whoa, okay, 
we don't have the story exactly right, but here's what we found. Here's what actually went on, and here's how the story's changed over the decades. And I think that's like one of the super cool things if that, you have, that the, have come out yeah, of the it, whole ghost hunting yeah. um, resurgence, I guess, uh, that, since That's 2000. to say if you have you have the luxury of some documentation, some credible well, documentation. Well, no, yeah, sometimes too. you might. It's just, it's just the whole rumor mill like oh yeah mm -hmm. the, the this ghost over here popped out one day and then in the 60s it's something else he popped out over here and it changes yeah. as people tell the story differently from generation or decade to decade i mean that that, that kind of stuff mutates like crazy and yeah, then it once yeah. it gets put down in a book or on the internet then it kind of solidifies even more yeah. as the potential truth from the past and, that, so. and that's so true amber that I think the people that are still around who have always been around were the people that really embraced the history uh, of these stories. Yeah. I, I, I always tell people when I was in high school or junior high, when I was growing up, history was the driest, most boring, horrible subject. I could not deal with it. Um, and, and thankfully, in my later years now, I've learned to really love history as a result of studying the paranormal and understanding that that's where these stories come from. And they're rooted in these ideas. Uh, and I really appreciate history now as, as a result of that. And I think that's, you have to be more of a history buff, I think, in some ways to study the paranormal or study ghost stories, let's say, than you are uh, a researcher. And I say that in quotes. I think a lot of people, as I've said earlier, Colin, uh, sometimes I like, okay, where's the documentation on this? Where, where is the history on this, these claims that you're making? Right. And, right, there, and right. There are, there's a lot of people that do walk that walk. They go out there and do the footwork and they do find the facts. And I think that's fantastic. Well, it's also interesting. I mean, some of the more kind of straight up kind of paranormal researchers, um, what they seem to be more interested in, for lack of a better word, is the physics. Right. They right. they they're not sort of interested in history in the history yeah. or they're sort of interested in proving a kind of you know a, a supernatural phenomenon in terms of some kind of empirically verifiable physics you know and and i think that i yeah i that's an interesting question you know it's not um it's for me it, i've always found the prospect of that kind of maddening so i never went down that road but you know <laughs> I, I certainly met and talked to people who are really dedicated to this idea of you know whatever their theory was that it was wormholes or uh, you know, some kind of, you know, something, you know, they, they have their various hypotheses that they're, they're set out to, to prove. And, yeah. and, I, and so it's, you know, the, the, the broad header of ghosts, I think is really fascinating in that it, it is a kind of, kind of trans discipline uh, fascination. And, and you get this kind of mix of both sort of, you know, hard science and, um, you know, history, historians and kind of cultural historians yeah. kind of all working around the margins of the same kind of idea. And I think that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. And that, and that's, you know, and both sides are equally as fascinating to me, but when it comes to the more empirical study of this, where you do have the, you know, the, 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 the more scientific people out there that don't really care about the history to me, they had they in a little bit of a way they have to carry up care about the history because they wouldn't be there. There has to be to me exactly, when it, yeah. when it, there has to be a story to be told for someone to come and say, well, the story says there's ghosts here. I want to see if there's ghosts here with my little K2 meter or whatever you may have. So even then they have to work scientifically based on a story, I think. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So 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 you kind of I mean, you can't really do the physics stuff without the history you can't 
you know, I guess, you know, can't entirely do the history stuff without being a little curious about the physics of it. I mean, if you if you really do believe mm -hmm. that, you know, ghosts are haunting a, a Victorian, I guess you got to ask on some question on some level, or at least I would think you, you would want to ask, you know, what's the mechanism by which that's happening? You know, like what wh how does that come to be? You know, whether it's a I guess it's also a religious question for some folks, too. But, you know, it doesn't it often doesn't line up easily with you know, one's religious beliefs. I mean, the amount of, of diehard atheists that I've met who are completely comfortable with the idea of ghosts always, always astounds me. But yeah, so <laughs> it's a little mix of all of these things that kind of work together. And, and yeah. um, you know, because it's a kind of nebulous phenomenon or idea or belief, but one that, that really transcends, you know, place and culture and language and religion and all that stuff, you know, you, you get all sorts of seekers coming at it from all these different angles and they all kind of intersect with each other in kind of cool and weird ways, I guess. Yeah. You, you know, the other place, Colin, in your book that was uh, when we were talking about the whole ghost tourism and all that was the House of Seven Gables. I yeah. was I was really I had never read that in, until your book about the secret room. And I, mm. I remember when I was there, they, they talked about it. There's here's this room and here's this history behind it and whatever. And I mean, I, I don't think it was it wasn't like a, they played it up with ghosts and stuff. And I don't quite remember because I was like 14. But um, yeah. that was trippy that back already in the early 1900s, they're like, let's we're going to redo this amazing historical home, House of Seven Gables in Salem, Massachusetts. And we're going to kind of just add something to it, you know, like, yeah, for the it's, story. Again, it's, a, it's a great example of how the stories about a house can change through through time. I mean, and again, you know, I mean, People who people have been there. There's this this staircase that um, our tour guide described as either people's most favorite part of the tour, or their least favorite part of the tour, because it's very claustrophobic and strange, but yeah. also totally yeah. cool and rad. You know, and and they for years the story was, you know, this was a curious quirk of of the building that was built either to protect the occupants from Indian raids or from Salem witch trials or something like that. Um, and it was it was Hawthorne's inspiration for the House of Seven Gables. His his aunt owned the house. Um, and then, of course, they had to explain why there was no mention of a secret passageway in Hawthorne's construction, House of Seven Gables. So, you know, it's a sort of constantly sort of strange attempt to kind of explain this cool architectural feature. But, you know, when I went there in 2015, they they copped to it. They said, you know, we they the. They built this intentionally when they were yeah. remodeling the house in the 1910. You know, so they so they are sort of coming clean in a way that I think is still really fascinating because now that decision to add this this cool architectural feature uh, long after Hawthorne's book had, had been published was itself kind of part of the weird and fun history of of the building. Whereas you know, contrast that to to a place like the Merchant's House Museum in New York um, that that downplayed its kind of paranormal uh history for the longest time and now um is doing much more in the way of ghost tours and other kind of stuff and sort of embracing it so so different different houses different properties different management different historical societies are kind of constantly evolving how they sort of treat the you know paranormal or you know folk history of of their buildings to kind of speak to do new audiences or kind of roll with the tides. And I, I don't know, I think that's all, it's all fascinating. A lot of it's economic, a lot of it's cultural, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot more organic, I think, than we, we maybe think it is. Yeah. It's like, how do you manage your ghosts? 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Ghost management. I want that job. <laughs> uh, okay. So at the beginning of the hour, Colin, you talked about your new book. And it was involved. Yeah. Oh, about boy. Crypt- you should have seen her antlers pop up when you said that. And it's about cryptids. So can you give us just a little idea about what this is going to entail? Yeah, sure. So um, so the new book, um, which is coming out next year, it was supposed to come out this year, but it's turned out to be a bigger project than I had imagined. So it's it's really going to focus on on cryptids, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot type type things, little chupacabra, um, as well as uh, UFOs oh, and and the sunken, lost sunken continents of Atlantis and Lemuria. Oh my God, this is gonna be great. Yeah, so, um, you know, and, and, and I think if, if the sort of overarching kind of thesis, or not thesis, but kind of grouping that made Ghostland make sense to me was the idea of architecture, of sort of looking at, you know, buildings and how buildings worked in relationship to, to the dead in the past. What, what has been really fascinating about tying these ideas together is this kind of, kind of sense of of the wilderness or or kind of marginal spaces so you know in in ghostland i spent a lot of time in cities and for this book i've spent a lot of time in you know the deserts of nevada where area 51 is or you know the deserts of new mexico roswell and socorro you know or um you know the the redwoods of northern california which is another kind of kind of wild space where where one is likely to find bigfoot I did not go to the Himalayas, alas, uh-huh. uh, but, you know, <laughs> uh, but, you know, once again, you know, so so what I think kind of kind of brings together uh, 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 cryptids and uh, various stripes as well as as aliens of various stripes and and the the possibly still lingering inhabitants of Lemuria who may or may not be hiding in Mount Shasta, you know, is this the sense that there are these kind of wilderness spaces on the edge of civilization that tend to be populated by by denizens that of, of various kinds. So that's that's what the the current book is is sort of trying to kind of parse out and piece together is is how we we populate the margins with um you know quote unquote monsters for for lack of a better term. Oh that's gonna be awesome. That's awesome. So. Yeah. Or it'll be terrible. Who knows? It's it's still in progress yet, but we're, we're fingers crossed. Hope for the best. <laughs> I'm fairly certain it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great read. I know Amber will be the first to grab yeah, one pre-order too. as soon as I can. Oh, well, thanks guys. <laughs> Colin, we got to thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Um, and all these topics we covered, uh, they were, they were fascinating. And this, you know, he, I don't think this, I've dug this deep into uh, the ghost story just the idea of what a ghost story is, where it comes from, uh, the ideas of it, what color it is. I haven't done this in a very long time. And I think, I think people take the ghost story uh, or stories of ghost, whatever you want to call them for granted. A lot of times, uh, yeah. it's, it's really refreshing and interesting to really explore just the topic itself itself of ghost stories. So thank you for that. We really appreciate cool. it. Yeah, well, thanks for for reading and and for having me on and talking about all this stuff. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's the thing. I you know, if if I'd like to do anything, it's like you know, I'd like to kind of look at these things that are kind of hiding in plain sight, you know, both literally in the case of ghosts, but also kind of figuratively in the sense of like you know the stories that we tell and why we tell them and and what's motivating those decisions. And I think you know, again, whatever you believe, 
just kind of having that conversation can be a really fascinating way to just understand a little bit more about yourself and and the people around you. And I think that's cool and worth doing. And I don't know, whatever. It's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Ghostly talk.